Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defence. Just watch this. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. We'll start with uh, Ireland's uh, second consecutive victory over Wales, which took them to number one in the world. Um, at half time, I felt sort of despondent. I thought it was just this kind of standoffish and uh, frustrating performance that was sort of in line with a year's worth of frustrating performances. At full time, I felt very encouraged that. Wales had been put back in the meat grinder. And yes. I thought, I was just like, all I wanted from halftime was, was, meatloaf. was more and more aggression. And just show that if you're not allowed to use any moves and you're not allowed to do any tricks, just kind of grind these guys down. And that's what we did in the second half. And now we're number one in the world. Never changed, Joe. <laughs> it, was a, it was a throwback to 2018. I, I was sitting beside you at the game if you remember. <laughs> and uh, we, yeah, I was the same as you. And I rewatched the first half there um, very closely, actually. And I was struck by the fact that we really struggled to get into the game and to hold the ball for the first 14, 15 minutes. Uh, we, Wales looked particularly... Um, they looked particularly good. Uh, we didn't look bad, but they were... They were stretching us. There was one instance where Alan Wynne Jones got an offload away from a three man tackle comprised of CJ Stander, James Ryan, and Tiger Furlong. And he offloaded it actually going with one hand. With yeah. one hand. Underneath. LeBron James, like. Yeah. Underneath the West. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck. You know? And then and then directly after that, like literally from that pass, Hadley Parks offloaded the same sort of offload, even actually almost a little bit more deftly in a, in, from a two man tackle. And Wales were looking. That was very early in the game, but Wales were looking very exciting. So the idea that Wales weren't taking it seriously and that they just wanted to go home and get it done, maybe they felt like they just wanted to go home and get it done 10 minutes from time when uh, they were getting pushed around and bashed into an awful lot. The Yeah, I remember, I remember those two offloads. They were absolutely slick and they're the, the obvious highlights are the real moves and they're the things that unlock defences. But they were both, they were done on the halfway line. Mm. And I think it's important that if you look at those um, first what, 18 minutes, one picked off line out when Ireland went to Klein and he, he got done by, I think it was by Alan Jones. Alan Jones. And one straight out 22 just meant that Ireland in two set pieces, you know, coughed up the ball, yeah. put themselves under pressure, particularly with the 22. Um you know, giving Wales a scrum to attack in the 22, or, you know, on the 22, in the 22, uh, with both sides of the pitch to attack. I think it was, was it even that scrum? No. It was, uh, it was that scrum that they kicked through. It was that way, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I thought Rob Carney did extremely well. Rob Carney, even on the replay, looked even more impressive because he was quite far away from the ball. Yeah, in, in relation great. to where sprinting from 58. George North was. So like, okay, he read it very well, um, which was impressive given, you know, the watching Robbie Henshaw against England. But he also he got across the ground very impressively. But again, like you go back to the set pieces and sort of mentioned this last week and um, you know, 
gone into a cup competition. It's all about set pieces and place kicking. So I thought, um, I think the meat grinder analogy is very good. I was really of the opinion. I couldn't get over the uh, physicality of it for a friendly. And I was chatting again, some people who thought, oh, it wasn't as physical as Six Nations match. And I was thinking to myself, it wasn't far off that physical. Um, because we talked, uh, you know, after the Italian match and before the England match, what was the point of the of the warm-up games? And it was, excuse me, arguably to build to a performance like that in mm. your final warm-up game. Um, I, I think that Joe probably went, like Ireland offloaded against England in the first few minutes. And I think we're probably trying to play a more enterprising game. Yeah. And the result in Twickenham just erased any kind of ambition from Joe's mind. He just went, my team is never going to be emasculated again. We are going to go, we're going to, like, I'm going to pick biggest squad I possibly can. So we talked about that, that in every sort of, uh, situation he would pick the biggest bloke for his squad um, obviously leaving out the tallest guy and even like looking at Aki and Henshaw ahead of Ringrose he sort of got geez like he's just he's picked the biggest centre partnership he can now th- this was always on the cards that not necessarily that that centre combination will be picked but that it's our strongest set of players for a given position yeah, well, I think... Um, like, there's certainly more competition in centre than there is anywhere else on the pitch. There's probably a lot of... There's probably, interestingly enough, quite a bit of competition in the back row, but it's it's not as strong. Like, I mean, it's... You're yeah. really trying... You're trying to mix a match to get the best combination that's going to play, but it's... Well, Aki's playing so well at the moment. It's... Yeah, uh, it it's like Aki's playing fucking brilliantly, and Henshaw obviously has only played one game, but played that game extremely well. Henshaw's... His busyness throughout the first half was really quite. Uh, it was just a lesson, you know, in in looking at players off the ball, and how much work they get through. Like he had some standout moments. He had two great tackles, one a particularly low one oh on Hadley God. Parks, and then the the one where he raced up out of the line. He had an ankle snatcher on Hadley Parks where he lassoed him with both arms. Oh yeah! But then he had the one where he raced up. Got Moriarty. Got the read on Moriarty and bashed him. And then he had the cover tackle on, was it Bigger? Yeah, cover tackle on Bigger. Like, this guy was just working his arse off. So he played great. He handled very nicely. There was a couple of nice interchange with Bundy, who, again, was outstanding, incredibly physical and dynamic. Fit. Fit looking. Talked yeah. about Bundy in the Six Nations, I think it was last season. Looked heavy, didn't think he looked sharp, mm. wasn't really sure if he deserved. I would have had him as number three of our centres. But now he looks really fit, looks really sharp, looks looks good to go. Yep. It's funny thing about the centres is that I don't, we haven't really had all three of them to choose from a lot of the time. No, it's always there's been always been one, an issue, yeah. One out. And um, I had this thought during the week, and I, I thought I'd bring it up now, um, that this sort of like newly invented um, flexibility that Gary Ringrose has to play you know, everywhere from wing to 10 to fullback. Out half as well, by the way. Um, it might be a case of he was thinking, how can I get three, three of my best backs on the pitch at the same time, particularly if there was worry about Keith Earls' knee? I don't think so. I think Ring Rose is just going to be 23. Um, I think if, if Earls dropped out, Conway will come in. Uh, Ring Rose one of his first games for Ireland was actually at 12. They played Jar Payne at 13 outside him. Uh, he started his career at Leinster on the wing. Nominally, he's a 13. So he does give you a bit of cover. 
Like he's got pace enough to play in the wing. Um, reads the game really well. He also he's taken goal kicks for Ireland before. He took a great touchline conversion for Ireland over in Japan, and going back much further than that to uh, schools rugby. He was one of the best schoolboy place kickers I've ever seen. I think he went through his senior cup campaign, which is the highest level of rugby, higher than the World <laughs> Cup. But I think he literally kicked every goal kick that he took, every single one. That's yeah. my, that's he had, my he had that renown. I, I, I don't have any yeah. memory of this. So I think, I, think he'll, I think he'll be 23, and that gives us both versatility and just this amazing uh, impact off the bench in terms of a guy who, who pre- pre- presents a completely different threat to either of our centres. And, you know, having depth means leaving good players out or on the bench. So the way... I don't think he's actually playing at his top form at the moment. Um... Sometimes that happens. You can just fall into a bit of a lull. It can be cured by, you know, two good things in 10 minutes. But I think he'll be on the bench for the Scottish game. I've been so impressed with Aki. Uh, he's really been outstanding. And then, and then Henshaw came in with a blinder. So I think the other, one of the other players, to be honest, there's a lot of players played well. One of the players who had a super game was Rory Best, who was incredibly busy. When I rewatched it, he was fucking everywhere. He really, you know, there was a, like, I was pretty, uh, pretty sort of despondent about him after the English game. I just thought he got old on the job. Rory Best is your Rob Carney. Yeah, maybe he is. Except I like him and you hate Carney. <laughs> I don't hate Rob Carney. Anyway. I was gonna. I have to call something into question. Gary Ringrose did not kick a conversion for Ireland against Japan. Penalty. Um, no, he scored a try. Scannell kicked a conversion for Ireland against Japan, and Jackson kicked all the conversions in the second one. He scored tries, but didn't kick a conversion. I'm pretty certain he did. Well, Wikipedia says he didn't. Wicked fucking pedia. Um, <clears throat> I would like to say one more thing quickly uh, while we're on the topic of the result of that match. Uh, I, I want to address <laughs> some of the things that have been said by journalists and rugby fans on Twitter about the vagaries of the world ranking system and Ireland reaching number one. Not vagaries, it's just a simple set of mathematical equations and it's for winning the Grand Slam last year and beating New Zealand and all the other results that count towards it against the team we play. It's it's just literally maths. Like, it's not an emotional decision. Your objective ranking system doesn't match like, my subjective how, opinion. How are people still trying to figure that out? Like, whether it means anything or not, that's another question. Who is still the best team in the world, in your opinion? In my opinion, it's New Zealand. Anyway, I just wanted to get that off my chest. Um, Good in point. The, in the, Can we edit that one out? Yes, of course. <laughs> also, I'll edit out that bit where I correct you about Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, what else in that match do you want to talk about? Balance of Ireland's back row oh, yeah. in the last two matches. We're going to ask you about the balance of the pack in general in that game and how... Ask about the balance of the pack. Ask away. Ask what you feel like. Everything's on the on the table here. Something else that was notable about the way that we had sort of picked a, an unusual pack for that game in that I think it left us 
with very limited line edit options. Uh, and not that you necessarily want to be showing all your trick moves again in the last game before the World Cup, but we had a team full of lifters and very few jumpers. And uh, a guy who we don't expect to be calling the line out in a big game, James Ryan calling the line out. Um, it was a strange balance, but I think maybe one that was informed by the uh, just the nature of guys needing to get a game. But there's also the question of the balance of our back row and who plays seven, who plays six, who plays eight. I thought Peter Omani had a very active game in the the second last match against Wales, playing at number seven. I thought he was involved a lot. I thought that Josh Vanderfleer got involved a lot out wide against Wales, which is like a lot of the time Omani's out wide, um, where he you know he's he's a good handler, but he's not a very good ball carrier, and he's he's not as quick as Van der Fleer. Van der Fleer is an extremely good runner with the ball. Um, runs into spaces, has a lot of pace, broke the line a lot against New Zealand in the, in the Lansdowne Road match. Um, and... Kiss your glass off, Philip. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and counter-rooked, Van der Fleer counter-rooked extremely well in the match against... Uh, in the, the recent match against Wales... I thought that uh, I thought that Omani, Omani's performance at seven meant that he probably started seven against Scotland. I think oh, that. I think you're totally wrong. Yeah, but I don't feel that strongly about it. I just sort of think, oh, he want to get Omani into the into the team for his lineage, and he's more effective. He was more effective at seven than he usually is at six. Uh, but, but I also think that the back row is. We were talking off mic about this. I think it's the most competitive area. Like I think that center has the highest quality, and there's there's three good guys, three really like three really really good guys going for two positions. But I think in the back row, I think first back row versus second back row. First versus sixth is much tighter than ever was. Yeah, but sorry, I mean like first three against the second oh, three. Oh, sorry, yes, yeah, it's really tight. Like I mean, if you pick whoever your first team back row would be, and the second team back row would give it a really, really good run. 50-50. Yeah. We don't have the same caliber of back row as we used to. Uh, and we, we won't be able to dictate terms in the top matches with our back row in the way that, for example, Sean O'Brien, Jamie Hees, Lip Ferris, or you know, when David Wallace was playing. Those guys were just absolute worldies. Somebody, somebody all-time greats. Certainly the professional are greats, and I would say all-time greats of Irish back row play. Whereas I don't think I don't think we have a single back rower who's as good as one of those four in our yeah. Yeah. in our squad. Um so I felt that CJ Stander had his best game of twenty nineteen for anybody, Munster, Ireland, anybody playing at six. He was extremely productive. I think when he's not the sole marked man in a back row. When you have another carrier in it there, like it obviously frees him up. He just can't be his target anymore. They have to keep an eye on Jack Conan. And I think I think as well when you say carrier, he had two carriers, but like Conan carries in the, the traffic, he carries in close. But Van der Fleer carries very effectively yeah. out wide. So carry wise, you've got a very good balance in, in that three. Mm. And uh, I thought Conan was very good. Conan again is technically a superb tackler. He had a couple of really good tackles. 
And then he gets on the ball. He tends to get on the ball slightly later in phases than CJ Stander does. Stander, like, as we've often, well, certainly I've called him before, our third prop. He he plays in a lot of ways similarly to Tyke Furlong or Kean Healy. He plays really close in where he's running, even though he's, like, he's a physically big guy, but for, a, like, a pro forward, he's not especially big. Like, he's not Billy Bonapola or Dwayne Vermeulen or somebody like that. Mm. So he's running at big guys all day. Uh, but in this game, you know, I felt that it, whether it's just that he's coming into form, which is a distinct possibility, whether it's because that back row balance suits him and that there's not as much an easy emphasis on other opposition players tackling him, uh, I felt it was his best game. Uh, and I thought that it was his best game and it was Ireland's best forward performance of the entire year. So the merit of that is, or sorry, the outcome of that is, is that our best back row. We have a, we have a non-line out. We have James Ryan, Jan Klein, who had, I think, one ball targeted on him, which he lost. Um, Reese is, uh, sorry, not well, Reese, but uh, Jack Conan, I don't think, was targeted with one throw. I think it was basically Stander and, and James Ryan who were targeted. All through the game for Lonitz. And Wales have two blokes that they'll put up all the time in Tipperick and Alan Wynne Jones. Um, and Wayne, well, Wainwright's tall as well. So th- they have more lineout options marking us. So then if you go to the second back row, you go Peter Manny, Ty Byrne, Reese Ruddock, not in the pitch. Reese Ruddock playing at seven mm-hmm. in, in that lineout. Pretty, I'd play a Manny at eight and Ty Byrne at six. And you sort of go, well, then you're really strong. In the back row, you've got a very big, you've got a guy who's a nominally, like he plays a lot of front five, basically plays regular season front five, provincial rugby mm. front five at number six, blindside, extremely good over the ball. You've got and a great line player and a great very, stealer, very, very strong, like very physically big number seven. And you have, I've, I've long contended that Omani's best position is eight now. The fact is that he's he's played there so rarely that that argument is redundant. I don't think it counts. But I think you know where he plays the most frequently is, um, let me put it this: way, I think flanker is his best position. But I thought he played most more effectively at seven rather than six, playing in the uh, the, the penultimate match against Wales. So how how Schmidt picks his lineup and and picks his bench options mm-hmm. would be very interesting. I think you go to. Um, what you're saying about the Irish pack's most effective performance I think that like Klein was part of that he was uh, Scrum was very solid if not destructive Scrum was solid which is you know we absolutely annihilated now a different well Scrum the previous week but we basically held our own like two of the French or the Welsh front row are Really inexperienced. I expected a hell of a lot more than a solid scrum. Yeah. I don't think, you know, for... I don't think that Klein lived up to the billing in that one. Where I thought he was very good was uh, his his tackling was very good. Uh, not just the number of tackles that he made, but he is a good, aggressive tackler. Uh, but overall, like, that was a... I don't think it's any... Um. I think it's sort of really reasonable to talk about how he plays, given that it's his his first match after the selection where where Dev Toner was dropped, and to 
you know, to say, well, how did, how did he do? And the other thing about this is there is no learning curve in this instance. It's not like, oh, he did, he did okay in his third match. Next year, my next match is in the World Cup. Okay, he's not good enough. Like, he didn't, first, he didn't select himself. I go, he just didn't. You know, but he gave away two penalties. He was turned over once, which is only ever 50% of players' fault. You know, he does rely on your teammates to get over you better. Uh, and then, uh, you know, he, he barely broke even, in my opinion. While his plus sides were his tackling uh, and his busyness. You know, he's, he's an active player. He's carrying his nothing special at all. Uh, scrummaging was, was nothing special, especially given what we're told that he's going to revolutionize our tight head side at the scrum. It, that just didn't pan out. Uh, lineup players, negligible, a decent lifter. Like, Jesus, Quinn Rue can do that. So, you know, he's a guy who, in my opinion, broke even. Certainly didn't disgrace himself. Didn't particularly impress either. What did you think of Gatlin's comments afterwards? Oh, Who do you think they were directed at? Just Joe Smith. He's just been chippy. I see. I don't. It's funny. Wales lost three of their four um, warm-up matches. Uh, albeit one with a you know a very substrength team, <clears throat> but they got beaten by England. They beat England with the kind of like a cheat move and. Uh, they got beaten by us twice. But Wales are just massively confident because one, they're Grand Slam champions, but also they always kind of fancy themselves. Gatlin is a kind of coach who, who just radiates confidence. I think, I don't know, I, I kind of feel like his, his comments might have been aimed at trying to get Ireland to play wider. So maybe, so I guess it is aimed at Schmidt is, is, is ultimately what I think. Or like it's not going to trick the 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 players into thinking, oh, maybe I should chuck more offloads because they're going to get given out to you by Schmidt if they do that. I See, I, I thought it was answering my own question here, yeah, which is always <laughs> the point. I thought it was uh, I thought it was aimed at his own players. I think that given given the fact that they lost three out of four warm-up matches and were so focused in, naturally, in in Ireland, on Ireland, and getting past a quarterfinal, like we're, we're obsessed by it, that... You, you don't think of other countries and, you know, Wales are in, have been in two semifinals, but like Wales have a, a pretty poor Six Nations record. Or is not Six Nations record, uh, World mm-hmm. Cup record. Yeah. They've had really high profile disappointments. And I think that what Gatland was, I genuinely just think he was saying to his players, he was going, no, no, like we we, we were able to score tries out wide. Um, I thought that Wales and the Six Nations, a lot of, their success was predicated on, on how fit they were and how much they were able to um, physically outlast teams, stay fresher for longer. Um, and I think I just think everything he was saying was was aimed at as his players. Um, yeah, that's that's a good point. Uh, I, I do agree that he probably had both both in mind. Gatland. I think that's part of the genius of his magic. Of his magic, yeah, that he could he can dress it up games. and he, he can uh, he can direct it up. If he was talking about Eddie Jones's team, he'd slant it slightly differently, and he'd 
You've had about discipline or something yeah, like that, yeah, yeah, as you did previously. Uh, or media pressure or sort of level of expectation. Um, and still address the message to his team. Why else have a problem, though? Because I don't know why he's moved away from uh, Samson Lee and um, the other Scarlet's tight head. What's his name? Francis? No. Jones? <laughs> Davies. <laughs> Williams. Ken Owens is the hooker. Rob Evans. I don't know why he's moved away from... I don't know why he's moved away from Samson Lee and Rob Evans. They both played against us in the the test in Cardiff. Now, neither went particularly well. But he's got, like, he's got lads in that in that Welsh front row selection. Dylan Lewis, Rhys Carey, who have like single figure Pro 14 starts to their names. I think Rhys Carey started one Pro 14 game in his career. He's the big lump who was uh, falling behind in the, the warm-ups. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, it just looks like a weak, it looks like a weak front row to me. Like they relied so heavily on, you know, you're, you have a great player, you're relying on Gethin Jenkins. I think Gethin Jenkins played in three, three World Cups, certainly, maybe four. Was it four? I think it was four. Uh, so you can't but rely on me. Like a, a tall tree casts a long shadow and it's hard to grow in a shadow. Said fucking Gwyneth Paltrow here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, since then, Rob Evans has been the best loose head they've had and they haven't selected him. I, I know he struggled with injury there um, the, just previous season for the Scarlets, but uh, they're shy on that side. And, and similarly, Samson Lee looked very much like he was being um, groomed, I suppose is the right word, but he was being, he sort of got the nod as being Adam Jones' successor. Uh and to not make a World Cup squad, those guys are 26 and 27, respectively. Like, they have another World Cup left in them, both of them, certainly. But that's prime. And the guys that have been picked ahead of them are, you know, Wynn Jones, uh, Dylan Lewis, Reese Carey. It's not, it's not a who's who. Like, I was surprised that they held up so well in the scrum. Uh, against us, but I'm not. I I don't think that they have the f- the front five to um to go and to go all the way this year. And like I'm actually surprised in hindsight that they were able to win the Grand Slam. Like Corey Hill was there starting second row alongside Alan Wynne Jones. Corey Hill is like a, a, you know a decent international player, but I would say and. Uh, don't want to disrespect Mike McCarthy, but that's that's the sort of level that 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 they're at. They're Chris Henry, Mike McCarthy type guys, guys who are good enough at their peak for about two or three years, and 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 that's uh, that's where they are. You know, they're not. You're not talking about a two World Cup international. What well, we're sprawling into this Wales chat though isn't that what Gatlin gives to his best teams that he confidence he imbues them with. The power of confidence. And is there anything, while well, we again sprawl further into the Wales chat, is there anything to be said for the fact that this 
the two strong opponents in Wales's group are Fiji and Australia, neither of whom are renowned for their scrummaging ability. Fair point. Uh, that is a fair point. I think Australia's scrum could spring a surprise on on Wales um, between Scott C. and Sokopi Kepu uh, with two ball. They, they actually have some extremely powerful and then CO and, and Kepu, very experienced scrummagers. Australia had scrummed Argentina, uh, particularly in the home match. I think it was in Melbourne. That doesn't matter. And Party had scrummed New Zealand in the first test and then got blasted in the second mm-hmm. test in, in Auckland. Um, they're better than received wisdom at Adam. I think everyone sort of points towards all oh, the Aussie scrum is weak, but this Aussie scrum isn't particular. The crowd didn't like that. Referee blows for half time. Uh, so the World Cup is coming up. <laughs> um, again, let's just take off where we were in Group D. Um, Australia put in one of the performances of the season uh, to beat the All Blacks handsomely in Perth. Uh, I just slagged off their scrum, but they got a lot of good scrummages in the well, a lot of experienced scrummages yeah. in the front row, uh, and then a lot of uh, mixture of serious experience in the backs as well. Um, how do you think they'll rock on? They have loads of experience. I go. You know, Hooper's 27 and is coming up on, like, very close to 100 caps. It's not 100 caps. How many caps? 95. Um, and, you know, I think Kepu is either Centurion or on 99. I know that he was close. Uh, two dads, Adam Ashley Cooper, is back. He is definitely a Centurion. Uh, Will Genius, he... Virginia is definitely close. Or yeah. Gone, I think he's gone over. That is a seriously experienced team. And yet I wouldn't think of the Australians. Now, Adam Ashley Cooper I would think of as, as old. Like he's he's gone. I think he retired and came back from retirement. Mm, yeah. Uh, but that's an experienced team uh, with experience of success in World Cups, especially relative to expectations. You know, they got to... Uh, if they were that final was the most entertaining rugby world cup final ever out of all of them mm-hmm. the the most recent one and australia played a big part in that so i think that game aside from anybody else's games and i include aside from ireland's games i include south africa new zealand that wales australia game is the game i'm most looking forward to i reckon they should stick steve smith at out half as well <laughs> He's sure up the rest of their dodgy batting. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you see that? Did you see him throw that, uh, that cut out pass yeah. in uh, <laughs> in uh, in training with the the cricket team? Jesus, did. he's got all the skills. Um, they open up against Fiji, so I'm sort of curious about World Cup upsets. Um, yeah. r- rugby is renowned for you know being pretty predictable and the fact that the better team usually wins the more favorite team usually wins but there have been upsets in the last few world cups like obviously japan beat south africa the last time around uh tonga beat uh france, france in 2011 mm. I'm trying to think of other ones argentina beating ireland was probably argentina an upset. Beating ireland fiji beating wales. uh fiji beating wales samoa um, beating wales samoa beating wales twice western samoa thank god we went playing all of samoa um that I think that's it. Must be. I think that's scope. shockingly. Scotland have never been victim to one. No, 
they've narrow narrow squeezes against Fiji a couple of times. Yeah. I think. Um, no, but they're they're. I think of all the Scott uh, almost beat Australia in the last World Cup, yeah, which would have yeah. been a huge Did surprise. Scott play New Zealand in nineteen eighty seven. In the quarters. With the New Zealanders wearing the white jersey. Deadly yeah. white jersey. Yeah. Yeah, just the reverse kit. Yeah. Let me just say something here while we're reminiscing about it. The 2007 World Cup, Scotland played New Zealand in the worst game I've ever seen at a World Cup. It was 40 nailed New Zealand. I remember that. Scotland's kit was navy and silver. New Zealand's change kit, which they stubbornly silver wore, black. was silver and black. And it was like 30 people with the same kit on except every so often a Kiwi would just run in a score. And Scots played their second sting yes, in the fucking group game. But it was fucking shit. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, Group D has that, has that potential. Uh, Fiji are one of the really, really exciting sort of third, third so seed many, teams. So much quality in that Fiji team. So much quality. Bill Mata, Yato, Nakawawa. Like, it's, it's a savage back five of the pack it's so exciting uh and on their this is a big cliche but on their day they can give anyone a match mm-hmm. anyone the fiji team that turned up and played ireland in uh, november 2017 was the best and most coherent fiji side i've seen outside the world cup since 2007 world cup yeah but doesn't mean outside the world cup yeah so if they're able to build on that with the time that they've had together, they could be, because in terms of athletes, I don't think there are better athletes in, in the rugby world than the mm. Fijian side. I really don't. No, having won the, the, the Olympics is a big confidence boost. Um, that tangibility, obviously they've been successful in the sevens competition for a long time, but that was their first Olympic medal. Mm. Um, I have to confess, I haven't a clue how many of those players are transferring over, but I, I do, it's... Tuasova and uh, Nakarawa, certainly. I don't think squad. I don't think any of the teams, but in particular Australia and Wales, will want to play, will be particularly looking forward to playing against Fiji. No, the Fijian climate is somewhat more similar to the Japanese climate than it is to the Welsh climate. Do you know what, I've never considered that. Yeah. Yeah, well, and and, and um, do Wales do Wales play Australia before they play Fiji? Wales open up against Georgia, but they play Georgia on Monday. They play Georgia on Monday in Toyota City. So whereas Wales Wales play Fiji on the Saturday, second day in uh, Sapporo, and then they go to Tokyo on the Sunday. So they play the day after we. Play. Excuse me, the day after we play Japan, Wales play Argentina, Wales play Australia. In a match, it was very, very difficult to get tickets for it. We look for tickets for it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it all opens up not that not that far. Uh, Japan against Russia um, in Tokyo. and then That's on Friday. That's on Friday. Friday week, yeah. Friday week. And uh, Australia play Fiji the next day. France play Argentina the next day. New Zealand play South Africa the next day. So there's there's three matches there. Okay. Let's move on to Group C. Uh, another group, the uh, spicy third seed. It's got England in it. It's got France in it. It's got Argentina in it. My money will be on England to come out top of the group. I think that's, that's probably the f- we're probably strong favourites. But I haven't a clue who will come out between Argentina and France. Nor do I. I couldn't give you. I couldn't give nobody. Um, I don't think many people could give you a good steer in that. 
I would have said Argentina at the end of the Six Nations, um, based on the uh, Haguaro's performance in Super Rugby. But I don't know because once again, there's been another left turn from uh, France, and it's a very different squad than was picked in the in the Six Nations. I can't give you any steer on that. I'm afraid it is. The strongest pool, without a shadow of a doubt, it also contains Tonga and the Eagles. Uh, I think America will be good. I think they've had decent results. They're always going to have good athletes. Um, England play against Tonga on the on the twenty second of September, and they play against America on the twenty sixth of September. Oh, that's tight. Yeah, um, Sapporo, and then they play in Kobe. A lot of beef on display there. Yeah. Oh, I like it. <laughs> um, I wonder if that's why Billy Volapola got picked against Italy, because he won't be playing in those two games. The impression I got from uh, the watching 40 minutes of that, unfortunately, was that uh, Barnes just thought Billy Volapola needed all the game time he could get to get warmed up to the level that he needs to be at in sort of a season, like actual level. He thought he was really still quite slow in defence watching that. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I can't, I, I'm, no, I'm no help to you on that one. No help to our listener. Given those two interesting third seeds in those groups uh, and just and taking into account groups A and B as well, um, can you? What, what would you say the most likely upset is? If you, if you take into account that uh, Argentina are second seeds and... Group C. Oh, I think there's it's 50-50 between France and Argentina. So in terms of seeding, and that would be an upset. I think France could win that one. Uh, I think Fiji can spring a shock on Wales because as disciplined and as hardworking as the Welsh defence is, there's certain... If Fiji don't give you looks which nobody else in World Rugby gives you and which you can't really prepare for and you can be, you can just lose out in a one-on-one, be it through pace, be it through agility or be it through size. So there's a potential upset there. I think Ireland's group is going to follow form. The only Samoa, Japan could I think Japan are going to take that. I don't think it's going to be an upset, but I think that could be tight. What about Japan, Scotland? I think Scotland will win that. Uh, I think that could be a very entertaining game, actually. I think... I have to, I have to confess, I think Conor O'Shea not... I don't think he's best served by being a first-team coach. I think the Italians, if I if I was Conor O'Shea, like the, the South Africa match would be the one I'd be targeting on the basis that if they can, they, they can't beat New Zealand, but they might be able to beat South Africa. South Africa will overlook them. But As South it, Africa, yeah, and South Africa will underestimate them. Yeah. Uh, now, I don't, I don't think the Italians have beat South Africa. There's nothing in the last four years to suggest that the Italians can produce a sufficiently high-scoring and concentrated enough display to to beat South Africa in in the manner that Japan mm. did because 
that Conor O'Shea isn't as good a rugby coach as Eddie Jones is, no matter what his, you know, whatever his other attributes might be. Um, so I think I think Japan could beat Scotland. I think the I think the home advantage. I think, like you said, the climate. I think the crowds um, will make it far more difficult for teams playing Japan. Yeah, uh, I do. F- fancy Scotland in that one still I think it's going to be quite a close game and a good game but uh, as we've said before you know we, we've given about six examples there there may be one rugby's a game in which typically the more favoured side wins it's played out strategically and tactically um, and that there's an awful lot of methods to score and there's an awful lot of scores in most games so it's harder to to get an upset just in terms of the Scotland um, Japan uh, just to bears comparison, I think we went there in 2017. Now it was a Lions year, mm. so it wasn't our full full strength squad. We beat them 50 uh, 22 and 40 20 ish, uh, you know, yeah. two ha- handsome victories. Um, Scotland went there the summer before, so not well, not, not that the Scotland are, are ever you know have too many lines, it's really realistically these days, but in 2016. They won uh, 26, thir- 26 13 and 21 16 against Japan. So I think there is reason to say that Japan, uh, Scotland is a very, a very good, it's a very good reason to say that there's, it's going to be a very close matchup. Yeah, that's a good point. I had And heard. I think in particular, our sort of ball hogging. Uh, physically dominant style of rugby is is the best way to not let a team who wants to throw the ball around with like incredible beautiful moves is by having the ball all the time. The best way to do that is by kicking the ball off the park. And I like that's I thought that I thought that for like amongst other things I thought that Dev would be an absolute cert to play against Japan. I thought like it, for that game I I feel that we have sufficient depth that we would have had a far more horses for courses selection. And in that game, like that O'Mahony and Dev Toner would play together and that we'd kick the ball off the park all the time ourselves and um, and just always compete in line it. You know, and they'd be forced to go to one or two and we'd put two men up in the air against that. So obviously Toner not going to that uh, in the squad makes that negligible. But I still think the best way to beat Japan is just be absolutely pragmatic about it mm-hmm. we can dominate them out of touch and surely in tight as well in in, in malls and scrums they know both sumu and judo <laughs> what's the toughest group to get out of do you think england's group to me without without a shadow of a doubt there's three uh well, there's England. England are better than the other two, but they're three tier one teams in in the same group, and I think that's you know it's it. There's no. It's not a trick question or a trick answer. I think it's quite obvious. Yeah, and I, I suppose when I when I phrased it, I I heard it come out of my mouth, and I was like, what I was thinking of was by the time you reach the quarterfinal, um, you know, which are you better being battle hardened or? Are you worse off by having absolute lumps kicked out of you? And I have to I have to say that the two teams that get out of their group, like they Tonga and America, who are both enormous teams as well. So like, there's no Uruguay, um, yeah, in it. 
you're not even like, okay, Georgia are going to be very big, but I, I don't think Georgia have 80 minutes in them at all. And I, I don't think they're going to pose or Canada, like I don't think they're going to pose questions to the big teams in their pools. So I think you can pretty play around with your, with your, uh, with your team selection for those sort of matches. But I think whoever comes out of England's group and it, it does it matter who plays first or second? They, they play Wales and Australia. I presume the Wales and Australia get out of the group, and Fiji don't don't spring a big surprise. Mm. Um, and then the winner of that pool is set up to play the winner of the New Zealand South Africa in pool in the in the semi final. The, there's a couple of things from the last World Cup that spring to mind w- with regards uh, predicting who's going to emerge and how they'll emerge at quarter final level. Firstly, I felt that our draw last year or last tournament was really favourable to us and that we were building towards the quarterfinal and that our games got harder. And it seemed ideal in a, from an abstract point of view that there was always something to play for and that there was... Because our last match of the pool was against France, so people would still be competing in matches, the third match, to play in that side. And it seemed like this is a great draw for us. But the fallout from that game was we were fucking crippled by injury and also in one uh, instance, suspension mm. uh, for Sean O'Brien, Patton, Pascal Pape in the tummy. Um, and suspension and citations are going to have a big impact in this World Cup. Yeah. Even if it's only a week, like the, the mildest citation that you could get in the domestic season, that's a, a World Cup wrecker. If you're playing against, and this is something in which... Will it's going to be a factor in every match, but there's certain games which can become wild. And I would sort of, without wanting to stereotype, I would look at the games against Pacific Islanders can become pretty ferocious as they go out to, to smash and then the opponent goes, oh, we're not going to be intimidated and tries to respond in kind. And you can... F- have yourself in a situation where you're not getting red cards on the day, but a siding commissioner is looking at that and go, well, that's a head high tackle with force. There's no real mitigating factor. It's a, it's a ban. Mm-hmm. So I think there's going to be more bans in this World Cup. Even if, even if the citation officers aren't going by the standards of domestic standards, because they don't want to just cite everyone, but it's going to have a big impact to play. Um, how do you think, by comparison with Ireland having their uh, seeded their higher seeds front loaded this year, do you think it's a it's more favourable than what we experienced in 2015? Yeah, because our experience of 2015 was so disastrous in, in the fallout from their final pool game, it can't be as bad as that. I just don't see uh, I just don't see any scenario as many injuries as we pick up there's always the potential that you can bring out subs and they can actually they can actually play a bit. Like, we lost so many people just in one week mm-hmm. um, between Sexton, Omani, O'Connell. They were all gone in the space of one game through injury. O'Brien. Through, yeah, Payne got injured actually against Romania. Mm. But, you know, three players injured in one game, one suspended in the same game, another player injured in a previous game, and then a sixth player injured in seventh or eighth minute of the actual quarterfinal. Tommy Bow broke his leg, if you remember. Like, that was yeah. fucking catastrophic. 
an absolute catastrophe. But uh, bear aside from you know, aside from the, the the two outliers, like that's four players that we lost in one game. And, you know, I, I can't see that being. I can't see us being as unlucky as that again. Yeah, touch all the wood that's gone. We've generally steered away from doing our terrible predictions, but I want you, <laughs> nonetheless, to give me predictions for the two teams in the final, who wins, and just a little bit of why you think that. I think New Zealand are going to be in the final against Ireland or Australia. So do I have, I have to pick one? I own Fortunately, would pick Australia. I think that I don't. There's such an obsession with getting past a quarterfinal. I think Ireland get past a quarterfinal, and then they're like, "Now what?" Italian Whereas, job. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas I think, like the, I think, I think the Aussies have um, actually have a really well balanced squad. Like, I mean, when I look at, yeah, you know, look at the Aussie squad, and I just think, ah, Cheka. And when I think of Cheka, I think of Gats. I think that they're the, the two of the sort of the wiliest guys uh, in. I think like look, I think Steve Hansen is 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 wily as well. Like I think I think there's I think there's a lot of great survivors. Um, I think they're real rugby men. Um, I think I look. I think probably all the guys who are in charge of of World Cup teams are real rugby men, but. I think if like Hansen or Cheka or Gaddy weren't involved with the World Cup team, like if there was no World Cup, they'd be like they'd be involved in club. They'd be involved. In yeah, if they weren't pros, they'd still be coaching. They'd still be coaching. They'd still be involved. They'd still be good. They'd you know they'd pretty be heavier because they'd be boozing a bit more. But like <laughs> pretty heavy already. Pretty heavy. Pretty just big blokes. And he's. He's got a very experienced squad. He's he's sort of made decisions like going out and getting Ashley Cooper. Like it means he really really wants him. You think it means that like whether he's going to start or not, he's decided this is a guy who's a great competitor. I want him in my thirty mm. over there. Like Nick White. I want a Gen X or other ones. All my millennials. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he's got like Hooper and Pocock. But he's also got size in that back row. Um, Salaka Lotto. Yeah, he is a unit. Like for years and years, the Aussies have struggled to fill the third position in the, in the back row. They know they've they got... They've got Fardy. Oh, that's a good point. But they were playing Pocock at eight in that final, weren't they? Yeah. Well, I think yeah, they did Pocock's the same. Pocock's eight, though. I think you play eight in this tournament. Do you think so? Yeah, they play Selecke Lotto at six. six. They play Hooper at captain at seven. And, and they've they got play. a big couple of second rounds. They've got one of the uh, the guy who I can't get over. Uh, we were just talking about him earlier. Who's on 97 caps is Rob Simmons. That's, that's bonkers. Like. But they've a load of lads who've been, who've, who've multi, like two-story Rory, they've got Coleman and they've got Rodda. And Rodda's yeah. picked up a load of caps recently, but like Arnold and Coleman were playing yeah. four years ago. Yeah. Um, so they have a lot of blokes who are solid and know, like, capable of playing. So, solid's pejorative. They've got guys who are capable of playing international re- level rugby in, in the front five. Yeah. I think New Zealand's draw, huge emphasis is on the South Africa match. And then I think their quarterfinal is 
whoever comes second out of our pool. Mm-hmm. So like hopefully you're talking about Scotland and Japan. So I think you're talking about the easiest quarterfinal. And then you're talking about whoever comes first out of England's pool against second out of the Wales Aussie pool, who I think are just going to be absolutely destroyed. Like whoever comes out of England's pool is going to be wrecked from having played four highly physical matches, um, which could, you know, two of which, like Argentina could win that pool. Yeah, uh, Unlikely, yeah, unlikely, I don't see it. but possible. The thing which England it could be a, a pool where everyone wins one game against one another in a you know a yeah way, you yeah know. Group E World Cup ninety yeah <laughs> yeah um, the thing that about England is they I'm not sure they realise how reliant on Billy Vanapola they are they are super super reliant on him and Farrell yeah. I think that's arguably, just and like and that's because they're so good. That's like sort yeah. of saying like, oh, New Zealand are really reliant on Body Parrot and Kieran Reid. <laughs> that's because they're deadly and and, and Brody Retallick, they're irreplaceable. Yeah, they are irreplaceable. They are irreplaceable, and you never know who's going to get injured. Okay, well, will you pick your uh, finalist and winner? Um, I think New Zealand are going to win the World Cup, and I don't think we're going to get to the final. So, I think the two strongest teams in New Zealand is South Africa. Uh, no, I, that's a lie. I think New Zealand and England are actually the strongest teams in it. I think South Africa and England are very close, but I'd give England an edge. I think their back play is more polished. But they, all three of them can make it into the final. I think New Zealand will win it, so I have to eliminate those two. So, I think the Australian tournament pedigree and the amount of experience that they've got is going to stand them in good stead. If they get to the final, New Zealand will do a number on them, though. I think New Zealand are going to play South Africa in the final and beat them twice in the same tournament. Can they? Yeah. Yeah, South Africa beat us in the quarters and then play Wales, Wales Australia or Fiji in the, uh, in the semi. Oh. And I think America will be... Do you? Watch out for them, so. I think Japanese will be Scotland. I like it. Yeah, I think Japan will be Scotland. Any surprise from you? No, I think the biggest... France not being a complete shit show would be a surprise in a way. Uh, France, 2011 World Cup finalists. Uh, I think the, the surprise that I would most like to see is Fiji beating Wales. It's so much time for Fiji. Um, and I think that's potential. Like Wales are all, all great, and they they just mightn't be ready if Fiji run wild on them. That's going to be our last coherent uh, mocast all in one place. The next one will be uh, half recorded in Japan and half recorded in Dublin, as I, I guess the next couple will be. So, um. We're looking forward to the World Cup. Really looking forward to it. Yeah. I can't believe it starts next Friday morning. I'm going to watch so much rugby in my bed. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, good luck to Ireland. We'll see you when we're on the other side. Good luck, Ireland. Good luck.